From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He has spent plenty of time in the wild as a National Geographic photographer. These days, Joel Sartori takes portraits of zoo animals against plain backdrops. They prepped a space in black. Hippo shifted in. He ate some apples. He ate some oranges. He pooped all over everything. Then they let him out. Pretty cute, but there is a strong conservation message. Sartori's in Colorado this week for his massive worldwide photo arc project. Then she bought a house with a lawn, except... Our front yard is south-facing, and so it just gets blasted by the sun all day long. We could not keep it alive for the life of us. So she ditched the grass and planted a more Colorado-friendly garden. Turns out September's a great time to do that. Are you planning to take advantage of Colorado's supercharged EV discounts? If you're in the market for a new electric car, consider donating your old one to Colorado Public Radio. You get a new car, we get your old car. And the proceeds from your tax-deductible donation mean we all get great programming. Find the title, fill out a simple online form, and schedule a pickup. It's that easy to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Many species that are on the brink of extinction are featured in zoos and wildlife sanctuaries, which is why National Geographic has a project to photograph them. And that project is called the Photo Ark. Ark as in Noah. It's the brainchild of Joel Sartori, who's in Colorado this week. The photo arc is my 30-year effort to photograph every species in captivity around the globe. We do mammals and birds and reptiles and amphibians and fish and invertebrates, but the difference is we do them all on black and white backgrounds using studio lighting. And the reason we do that is to bring out the true color and to be able to see these animals and look them in the eye. There's no size comparison, no distractions, so the mouse is every bit as big and important as an elephant. Or a hippo, which is one of the animals Sartori has come to the Denver Zoo to photograph this trip. Think of his work less as classic nature photography and more like portraiture, as if a critter sat for a school photo. Especially the smaller animals, which you're never going to see in the wild. They live in muddy water or in the soil or high up in trees or under tree bark or leaves. So this is our chance to really get to know biodiversity, figure out what it looked like, and above all, be motivated to care about saving them, because when we save them, we're saving ourselves. The photo arc includes stills and videos, more than 14,000 species so far. It's online and searchable. The search bar says, find your favorite animal. So I typed in giraffe. And sure enough, a portrait of a reticulated giraffe popped up, a species listed as vulnerable. The animal is indeed against a black backdrop, Nothing to distract me from its chin whiskers and spots and its soft gaze. And that eye contact is key, Sartori says. It's something we primates have hardwired into us, and I don't know why that is. But if you think about eyebrows, right? They raise up when we're surprised. They come down if we're feeling, you know, malicious or sinister. If we're in a bad mood, the whites of our eyes really show surprise or anxiety or fear. If, if you want to approach a mate, you want to check somebody out, if they, see if they like you, are they looking back at you, or are they averting eye contact? You can also tell if somebody likes you or not by whether or not they look at you. If you don't like somebody, you won't look at them. 
and other people pick up on that. So we are total creatures of eye contact. So in terms of, in terms of what I do, eye contact's everything. And I tell you, it's really hard to get people to care about sponges and anemones and corals because they don't have eyes. Mussels, freshwater mussels, are these aquatic water monitors. They're telling us our water's so dirty they can't live in it anymore, a lot of them. They're in trouble. And yet, we can't get that across the public because they look like rocks. They're not rocks. They're really critical to our own survival. But eye contact is everything. So the photo arc is all about eye contact, every bit of it. Every bit that we can make about eye contact, we do. What is the strangest sound you've made to get an animal's attention to make eye contact with you? Most zoo animals have heard everything. They've heard people clapping and yelling and jostling keys and whistling. The only thing I've found that works once in a while is to squeal like a pig, and it works once. Like that. It works one time. I got an Arctic fox to look at me with his head tilted like your dog when it hears a weird noise by doing that one time because most of these animals have heard it all, but they haven't heard that. This is existential for you, and it's existential for many of the critters that you photograph. A lot is on the line here. This is a project I had thought about doing a lot since I did a story on the Endangered Species Act for Geographic in the 90s. And I noticed that most of the listed species, plants and animals, were never recorded well, never documented well, certainly not in a way where you could find them. There was no online when I, when I started working for Geographic. There was no web. But the truth was, a lot of these species could go away, especially amphibians, which are in such trouble because they take in toxins through their skin and they need a steady, moist environment and they can't take heat, a lot of them. You know, they were going to go away and nobody would even know they existed. There was no documentation of them. And freshwater fish, the fish of the Colorado River Basin, you'd see some pictures of animals laying next to a ruler, dead. So when my wife got breast cancer about 18 years ago, and I was home for a year, and I'd done 30 stories over 17 years for Geographic at that point, only two had really made any difference. And when I was home, she and I both talked about it and thought, well, if she gets better, I'm going to start doing something different. I, I want to do portraits of these small animals because it's going to be the only record that exists of a lot of them. Snails, toads, sparrows, nobody cares about them, but I do. So she did get better, and she's fine to this day. And I started doing this business of taking pictures on black and white backgrounds. I called it the Biodiversity Project at first, and I realized that was too complicated when I could not remember the name of the project on live TV. <laughs> So I changed it to the photo arc because everybody understands what an arc is. And you are capturing animals that are in captivity. Yes. And that, that, that's because zoos and wildlife rescues, that's where the species are. A lot of times, yeah, they are the arc now. A lot of zoos, they have these populations of animals. They're the only ones that have them. But also, it's very hard to convince a tiger in India to come out of the woods and lay on your backgrounds and have me light them up. You know, you have to do animals that don't really have a choice but to be shifted into a space. So the way that it works is I will contact the zoo ahead of time, say, would you be interested in having me? Unfortunately, the Denver Zoo has always been interested in having me. It's been great. Been coming here for 20 years, on and off. And I say, can you send me your latest inventory? And they do. And I say, okay, I need these 15. And they'll say, well, we can do these 10 because five wouldn't handle the lights well or whatever. And then we make a plan. Like we made a plan today for Hippo. They prepped a space in black. Hippo shifted in. He ate some apples. He ate some oranges. He pooped all over everything. Then they let him out. 15-minute process. No problem. 
This required painting a background because you need a space large enough that it is rendered black for the hippo. That is correct. So it's work on behalf of the zoo, but the zoo gets copies of everything. Uh, the zoo thinks it's beneficial, and I think it's beneficial just to have a good record of these animals. And so we're going to do a Usambera pit viper in a little tabletop shooting tent that has a white liner in it. And we're going to do a couple of fish, marine fish, ocean fish, in a little tabletop tank. But the hippo was the show today. And they had prepped and practiced with that animal coming in there for two weeks. So when I come along, the animal just thinks he's coming in to get a treat. And he is. He ate. And then he goes outside and eats some more. Did you make any sounds for the hippo? I did not have to make a single sound. I tried to stay low and quiet and not move and not frighten him. And he was real good. How many more animals are there still to photograph, do you think? Well, we used to think, you know, at the world's accredited zoos and aquariums, there were maybe 12,000 species, but the number of aquariums has grown around the world, so the number might be closer to 25, and we're at about 15,000 now. So hopefully I'll have enough time left in my life to get it done. We have to go farther to get fewer now. I also worked at a couple of wildlife rehab centers while I was out here. But in terms of where I am in the project, a little bit more than half done. Have any of the species you've photographed gone extinct since you've captured them? Yes, several amphibians and a rabbit that lived in eastern Washington state was driven to extinction. And others are right on the cusp. Like the northern white rhino is now down to two females, a mother and daughter, in a pen in Kenya. That's it. So we see extinction, you know, every few months. We see it looming. People just don't understand the consequences either. It is epic when you lose a species. Epic in a bad way, because we don't understand how it fits in the role of everything else. But I, I do know that if we drive enough to extinction, it's a bit like having the rivets come out of an airplane wing slowly when you're mid-flight over the Atlantic Ocean. How many, how many rivets are you comfortable with losing? I'm not comfortable with losing any. So that's why I do this, is to get people to wake up and care and be moved to do something. You know, and there's things people can do right here in Denver, like plant a pollinator garden. Quit pouring poison on your lawn to kill bugs and fungus and weeds. Just make your lawn natural and native. The delight that you get, especially children, in seeing butterflies and native bees come into your backyard or your front yard, it's fantastic. If you want to save monarchs, plant milkweed. It, it, it's things we can do all the time. I drove a combustion engine car to be with you and to talk about species disappearing and right. climate change. Right. We're all sinners, right? Yeah. So I drove a hybrid, at least. But the sooner we can get into move away from burning petroleum to move around when we can use renewable energy electrically, uh, that's, that's going to be a great day. Thank you so much for talking with me. You're Good welcome. luck in the remaining photo shoots. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. National Geographic photographer Joel Sartori speaking with me at the Denver Zoo. He's in Colorado this week to add to his ever-growing photo arc, which you can explore online. We'll have a link at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. Pop, you're stepping on my shot. Said the wolf to the porcupine. Hey, Bill. You're stepping on my quill, said the porcupine to the swine. Oh, you're stepping on my line, said the swine to the chimpanzee. Yikes, my stripes, boof, my hoof. I go out of
Oh, I just love that tune from Mel Torme and Margaret Whiting. Now, our guest mentioned the power you have to save species, specifically planting a garden that attracts pollinators and harmonizes with Colorado's climate. So coming up, how to get started on exactly that. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR Classical plays the great works all the time. Now, hear them nonstop every Saturday afternoon at 1. Music that stood the test of time. The works the world should know. I'm Jesse Jacobs. Join me for Essential Saturdays 1 to 5. You can ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When Jessie Myers looked out her window in Thornton, she saw a kind of personal battlefield. Myers was waging a war to keep her grass green, and she was losing. So we just bought our house last year, and our front yard is south-facing, and so it just gets blasted by the sun all day long. We could not keep it alive for the life of us (laughs) and honestly just refused to put any more water onto it because it it wasn't doing any good. Indeed, Myers quit the fight. She dug up every blade and planted a garden, one that loved the sun and needs much less water. Turns out September is a superb time to replace a lawn. So let's get some inspiration, some ideas from Resource Central. It's a Boulder nonprofit. Neil Lurie is the president. Hi, Neil. Hey, it's great to be here. That Thornton homeowner, Jesse, felt like watering her lawn was akin to pouring money down the drain. How often do you hear that? We hear that over and over again. Increasingly, grass is a headache for a lot of people. And it's just the reality. Colorado is a dry state. So what we're hearing over and over again is that People in Colorado are ripping out their grassy yards because there's just not enough water to go around, and they're tired of the headache with the grass. So the headache is financial. The headache is the constant disappointment when it gets dried out. What else is the headache? Well, I think uh, there are three real things that are coming to mind. Uh, The first is the fact that there is a gap right now in terms of the amount of water available in Colorado the demand for water is significantly greater than the supply. Our collective headache. Our collective headache. On the Colorado River, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Um, So people are looking at what can they do to make sure that they're part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, The second thing is that water rates are going up year after year. Just about every community has either raised water rates recently or they're thinking about or talking about raising water rates there. And then that's just because of uh, the fact that the population's growing, the need for water is growing. Climate change is exacerbating the problem because it's leading to more frequent droughts and more severe droughts. And then on top of that, um, I think people are just, frankly, sick and tired of mowing the lawn. Aha. Yeah. That's right. You don't have to mow as much if you plant something that's a little wiser. Well, if replacing a grass lawn, you know, serves all of these benefits, what is stopping more homeowners from doing it? You know, we've actually done some surveys to find out just that. And the thing that is stopping more and more homeowners is it's a pain in the butt to remove grass yourself. Mm -hmm. So we actually reached out to 
dozens of, of different businesses to see if they would partner with us a few years ago to help people remove grass lawns. We couldn't get a single one to work with our nonprofit there because they were in the business of mowing lawns, not removing lawns. So about five years ago, we started offering our own lawn removal replacement service because the need was huge and no one else was doing it. That is fascinating. The people who have the skills, the time, uh, and the know-how to remove grass don't want to do that because they're sort of removing their bottom line. Yeah. And this is the, the big economic opportunity for businesses that are out there if they were to start looking at ways to be able to, to tap into the need and, and the marketplace that's out there. So our nonprofit about four or five years ago started offering our own lawn removal service. Is that a big job? It is. Uh, it is a big job. Um, but to make it easier, we actually started hiring crews of, of people that can help do the lawn removal for people. So we'll actually go in with the sod cutter, remove the grass, haul it away, compost it, and give people a blank canvas for starting all over. And for people that are interested, we'll even provide um, our garden in a box, our beautiful water-wise garden kits to make it really easy for people to reimagine their yard. And how much do you charge for this? I don't usually ask about price, but... No, in a growing number of communities, there are actually incentives that make it very compelling. So uh, at last count, there are 20 plus communities that are offering incentives for people to be able to transition from grass to garden. Those incentives can range from $500 to $1,000 there that can go towards the cost of the lawn removal service or the cost of the water-wise plants, or both. So ultimately, the cost for uh, the lawn removal service or after those incentives, oftentimes it's just a dollar per square foot for uh, people to remove. So they just need to agree to remove at least 200 square feet, and we can help them transition that process. It fascinates me that you did not start out in this uh, business, that you saw the dearth of services and said, we've got to do this if we're going to fulfill our mission. We asked Jesse Myers, the homeowner we heard from earlier, what she spent. Uh, the sod removal and new plants from Resource Central totaled $2,500. She got $1,300 back in a rebate, bringing the total down, if I'm doing my math right, to $1,200. And, of course, she's saving on water. I have not turned on my irrigation system this entire summer. Uh, just because the the rains have been heavy enough to sustain everything, and they're all thriving very well, and it's it's beautiful, and I, my neighbors love it, and people that drive down the street they like wave from their cars, and they're like, it looks great. <laughs> oh, she mentions the neighbors. It does make me wonder: Do homeowners associations have rules against replacing a lawn like this? There are more and more people that are demanding that they are able to cons help be part of the solution of conserving water. So when homeowners um, reach out to their HOAs, oftentimes there are ways to be able to move forward where they can plant their own water-wise gardens. So uh, there are laws to help protect people with that process um, that HOAs can, uh, they can offer design guidelines, but they can't prohibit um, uh, the planting of, of water-wise solutions. So that is a growing trend throughout the whole state. Okay, you mentioned that in addition to tearing up the traditional grass and uh, composting it, helping people compost it, that you can provide them with a kit, essentially, for a water-wise garden. I'm just curious what some of the plants are, or maybe even alternative grasses that are in that kit. Uh, here's what we found out. If it's easy for people to be able to pursue a water-wise garden, they'll do it. 
If it's complicated, they won't. Uh-huh. So to make it really easy, uh, we started a program called Garden in a Box about 20 years ago, where we provide um, uh, usually about one to two to three dozen different water-wise plants. Um, that can include Rocky Mountain colubines, pincemans, others that are, they just sip water. Huh. They're beautiful. And uh, we provide plant-by-number designs, so it makes it really easy for people to lay it out so that uh, they can have a water-wise garden in no time. The whole process is super easy. People uh, can select their gardens uh, in uh, the month of March or in the month of uh, uh, June, July. And um, those plants are available for pickup uh, in the planting season in May and in, in September. So, And September is a great time for planting. Well, I was just going to ask you about this time. Why, why does this time suit this activity? Uh, the warm soil really helps stimulate root growth. There's less transplant shock. The plants uh, get a great start, and they have a bigger debut in the springtime. Aha, so, a bigger debut. Oh, I love how you've put that. My guest is Neil Lurie. He's president of Resource Central. It's a Boulder nonprofit that helps homeowners pull up their lawns and plant more efficient gardens. You know, each lawn replacement can save a few thousand gallons of water a year. Can that make a difference in the West's water shortages? Or is this a drop in the bucket compared to, say, agricultural use? Everyone needs to be part of the process. The reality is if we have to just keep on waiting for someone else to be conserving water before we start conserving water, it's never going to happen. So those changes, uh, transitioning from grass to gardens, really do add up. Each water-wise garden uses about half the water of traditional turf grass lawns. So people can really feel the pride of being part of the solution, reducing their water usage. And collectively, just this year alone, we've had more than 10,000 people uh, either plant a water-wise garden, remove a portion of turf grass, or upgrade their irrigation system uh, to be a more uh, uh, to be watering at the optimal level. This is by far the most we've ever seen, hmm. and I think it just really reinforces the fact that people want to be part of the solution. You think there's something of an awakening going on? There is a huge awakening. Hmm. There is a massive trend that is ramping up here in Colorado, where people are saying, "I don't want to just simply bury my head in the sand about." Uh, the Colorado River and, and, and the climate crisis, they want to be part of the solution there. Or bury their head in the sod, <laughs> as it were. You can take that joke, Neil, out of this studio if you'd like. Well done. Uh, what about um, pollinators? So water-wise perennial gardens, like our Garden in the Box kit, uh, are perfect for attracting pollinators like butterflies, hummingbirds, um, beneficial honeybees. And it's really joyful to be able to go out in your yard first thing in the morning and just enjoy seeing all these pollinators coming to your yard. There's so many people tell me over and over again, they never had a chance to meet their neighbors when they're mowing their lawns, but it becomes a conversation starter when people are walking, their dogs are walking on by, they see all the pollinators, they see the people uh, uh, enjoying the beautiful flowers, and it really becomes it builds a sense of community. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Neil Lurie, president of Resource Central, a Boulder nonprofit that helps homeowners pull up their lawns and plant more efficient gardens. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a campaign to increase life expectancy in Indian country. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. 
You expect context from CPR News, but sometimes the news won't wait. Sign up for the Lookout Daily Email from CPR News, a rundown of important fact-based reporting in your inbox every day. And when major news breaks, you'll also get Lookout alerts. Sign up at CPR.org Lookout. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Many serious injuries and deaths are preventable, and it may come as no surprise that these unfortunate events strike some communities harder than others, which is why Consumer Product Safety Commissioner Peter Feldman was just in Colorado. We're also going to talk about connected toys and his stern letter to Mark Zuckerberg. Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Your visit coincides with a new public service campaign. Uh, Why don't we listen to one of the spots and then talk about it? Nobody likes a crowded highway. A crowded crib is even worse. For a safe night's sleep, use a fitted sheet only and be sure there are no toys, blankets, or pillows around your baby. Who are you trying to reach with this message and why? We're trying to reach the American Indian and Alaska Native populations. We know that unintentional injury and mortality rates for uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives are around two and a half times higher than for average Americans. We're up with a public health awareness campaign in 10 states, including Colorado, with significant American Indian populations. One of the impetuses for the campaign were some visits I made a couple years ago to tribal areas across the United States, including the Wind River Reservation uh, just north of here in, in Wyoming. And the tribal leaders there helped shape the thinking of the current commission on the need to communicate our safety messages more effectively. And two, the purposes of, of my trip here are to amplify our message and to help build out some of the, the, the relationships even further. And, and more than that, to pay respect to the tribal leaders who helped uh, originate the idea. And cribs are a place of some risk. Absolutely. When you look at the numbers, uh, American Indians, uh, the infants are are 2.7 times more likely than non-Hispanic white infants to die from accidental deaths before their first birthday. And these populations have nearly double the rate of sudden uh, infant death syndrome or, or SIDS. Do you understand why these disparities exist? There's a correlation with maternal behaviors that may be more common in American Indian and and Alaska Native communities. And that's one of the reasons that we're up with uh, safety messaging that aims to keep children safe. There are many ways that the terrible accidents happen, even to good parents who are trying to do the right thing with respect to their infants. Uh, So these are always tragic, uh, but they happen every day. I know that you're meeting with the head of Colorado's Indian Affairs Commission, Catherine Redhorse, while you're here. At the risk of criticizing my own medium, Public service announcements for radio, like the one we heard, they strike me as rather analog. A little retro. Is the Consumer Product Safety Commission, with any of its messages, recalls, what have you, adapting? I mean, I know, like, federal officials can't be on TikTok, right? And federal agencies can't be. But are there ways in which we're trying to spread a message on different platforms? You're raising and asking absolutely the right questions here. And our usual method of disseminating safety information with respect to recalls or public health campaigns like the ones that I mentioned uh, are are disseminated via email and in the internet. But connectivity is a central issue when it comes to uh, tribal areas and and, in rural America in, in general. More than half of the tribal reservation residents have limited access to the internet or none at all. 
Uh, so the campaign that we're running, it's on billboards and it's on radio in areas with high Native American populations. I see. And, and this was a specific suggestion from from the tribes. Uh-huh. Uh, we were out here several years ago and, and posed the question to leaders of the Eastern Shoshone tribe up on the Wind River Reservation uh, who mentioned that the best way to connect with their members and to keep their members safe and to effectively communicate our safety messaging, it, it wasn't through the internet. It wasn't through apps or anything like that. It was, geez, we spend a lot of time in our cars listening to radio. Mm. So billboards and radio. Billboards and radio. Okay, shall we hear one other spot? Is your tank empty? There's another gas you should be worried about. Carbon monoxide can kill in minutes. But you can stay safe by placing CO alarms in your home. Do you want to speak to the disproportionality here? Absolutely. One of the common causes of accidental CO, carbon monoxide poisoning, is improper use of of portable generators. And that's something that we see just so often in rural areas, including tribal areas. That is to say they are not connected to a traditional power grid. Either not connected to a traditional power grid or exposed in a way that urban populations aren't to extreme weather events uh, and just general weather events like winter blizzards and and, and snowstorms. Uh So during power outages that are caused by storms or, or just spotty electrical connectivity, it just increases the risk profile. This strikes me as a side effect of a different disparity. That is, if you have uh, spotty access to power, then you are forced to rely on different technologies to power your home, that that comes with risks. Uh, And it's all part of a complicated picture, isn't it? It's a complicated picture and unwinding all of the the root causes of why you're seeing different disparities is probably beyond the scope of CPSC and its mission. But we do recognize that geography matters and culture matters. And in the same way that that we see an elevated incidence of, uh, of, of injury and death related to this particular hazard in these particular areas, so too are we paying attention to the Gulf Coast and hurricane season and are up with similar messaging across the country. If people are familiar with the Consumer Product Safety Commission, I suspect it's through the product recalls that land in the news. You also have the ability to fine manufacturers. In August, for instance, Whirlpool had to pay more than $11 million because its glass cooktops could turn on by themselves. Uh, The company failed to report that swiftly. How much does the U.S. rely on companies to self-report? That's a big part of how our structure is is set up. Um, There is a mandatory reporting requirement under our statute. If a company becomes aware uh, of a safety issue, there's a requirement that they immediately report to us. It's not the only source, though. We hear about issues from consumers, oftentimes via our website, saferproducts.gov. We also work very closely with states and our nationwide network of safety inspectors who coordinate with hospitals, for instance, that emergency rooms do provide fairly timely data about the injuries that they're seeing that are tied to specific Mm. uh, injuries. Uh, There's that that pipeline, in other words, of information from emergency rooms. There are several pipelines, but mandatory reporting from companies that is specifically called out in our statute. And uh, when companies fail to meet those obligations, and it's an obligation, it's not a voluntary reporting, that's when an agency like CPSC is on the field with uh, civil penalties and sometimes significant civil penalties and in instances where that conduct crosses the line into knowing and willful, for instance, knowing you've got a problem and concealing it from us, uh, we're on the field with criminal penalties as well. Uh-huh. 
You have regularly responded to criticism that the commission lacks teeth, and in August you wrote in a statement, it is true the commission has in the past demonstrated a lack of will to use its full set of enforcement tools. What did you mean and what has changed? Well, the CPSC is a five-member commission uh, with folks that are on staggered terms, and it takes three commissioners to vote a majority on any particular action. In the past, there have been members of the commission that haven't been as dedicated towards using the full suite of tools that Congress has entrusted and authorized the commission to use to keep consumers safe. I'm pleased to report that I I, I think because of of efforts over the past couple of years that you're starting to see that change. We are, for example, more regularly issuing civil penalties and making more use of our criminal authorities as well when there's truly bad actors in the marketplace. As you mentioned, you're one of several commissioners overseeing product safety. You were nominated by President Trump. And as your bio notes, you formerly advised the Senate on consumer protection, product safety, and data security and privacy. I'm curious how much your work is shifting from dangerous toys or stovetops to the world of digital safety, Peter. It's interesting. When, when you uh, work on consumer protection issues as long as I have, you reach a point where all the issues tend to converge. Uh-huh. And I think in certain product categories, you're starting to see that. And connected toys is a great example of yes, that. Yes, connected toys. So toys that have internet access and therefore, I guess, raise privacy questions around children. Uh, there are absolutely privacy concerns that are implicated when it comes to connectivity of toys. That falls somewhat outside the purview of CPSC's product safety mission. Interesting. Um, And that connectivity, in fact, raises different questions when it comes to, for instance, the ability of hackers to come in or or bad lines of code that are written that creates a potential for, for example, overheating or fire or Uh it may be manufactured in such a way that it's got small parts. Those are the types of things that we're traditionally on the field for, but that are are increasingly having a a digital and connected nexus. And so when it's about the privacy concerns, you know, like if I don't know if a toy had a camera or something like that. That is, uh, as you've described, a little out of your bounds. Yeah, that would fall generally more under the purview of the Federal Trade Commission. But let me let me take a step back. CPSC knows that the best way to reach consumers directly to notify them about safety recalls is direct notice. And that's via emails, telephone calls, or traditional stale mail letters. Given the tenor of the privacy debate right now, you are seeing states like California in particular was a first mover here, but you're seeing this replicated in other states as well, enacting state-by-state privacy laws that include, for example, a consumer right to be forgotten, which is a pro-privacy consumer protection that effectively puts manufacturers and retailers in a position where they are legally not allowed to collect consumer contact information, Mm. for example, for the purposes of marketing. And that's something that folks are generally familiar with. Where that implicates us, though, if that spigot is turned off where manufacturers and retailers aren't recording who they sold something to, when, why, and how it is, Ah. if further down the road, there's uh, a recall. That, that trove of information doesn't exist. There's no place to send uh, the direct notice. Firms then need to rely on more indirect notice like notifications in newspapers or broadcasting it rather than specifically targeting. I hear you speaking to the tension of, hey, don't keep my email address, Acme Industries. And yet, if Acme Industries produces a, a cooktop that starts on its own, uh, they 
maybe have an obstacle in reaching out to you. We would like them to know exactly who to notify and and where. And that's exactly right. That's where the tension arises. Um, So the broader policy issues of privacy versus use of consumer data largely falls far afield of where CPSC is. But the narrow piece of this that I have been asking for directly to state legislators that are considering uh, adopting privacy laws, but also to federal representatives in Congress that have perennially been working on, on privacy legislation that may in fact eventually preempt states, would be to pursue a very narrow carve out, keeping in mind the mm. safety case that an agency like CPSC needs to make. Okay, let's wrap up with the reality of physical goods being sold in virtual marketplaces. Tell us about the letter you and other commissioners sent to Mark Zuckerberg at Meta in July. Yeah, in July, we sent a letter, and and this was all four of my colleagues, reminding him once again that on Facebook Marketplace, we are continuing to see recalled goods for sale. And these tend to be very specifically recalled goods that are of the child and infant durable nursery product variety, Mm. which carry their own special risk, just given the vulnerable nature of, 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 of those particular consumers, babies and, and, and young infants. So are we talking cribs, toys that have cribs, been recalled? toys. Uh, for example, we had a, a fairly high-profile recall when I first got to the agency on the Fisher-Price Rock and Play out of concerns that, that children were dying in, in these products given how they were positioned. Hmm. And so you see it as Meta's job to serve as something of a traffic cop there. That is, if there's a post for a product that has been recalled, you believe the company has a responsibility to take down that ad. In the United States, it is illegal to sell a recalled good. Meta does a great job taking down posts, offering other illegal goods for sale, such as narcotics and policing other questionable sales. This absolutely should be a core part of the takedowns that they do. They clearly have the technology to do this. We'd like to see more from companies like Meta. And you think that they have more responsibility than the individual posters. Do you think the individual posters are mostly ignorant of this? That may well be the case. And we're always on the lookout for individual sellers that are, for example, aggregating you know, certain recalled products and uh, selling those at a profit or at a discount. Something nefarious, really. Something nefarious. Uh, it is possible that that exists, and it does exist to a certain extent. And when we become aware of that, of, of course, that's an individual case that we need to bring. Mm-hmm. It would be a difficult case for us to make to go after individual parents that are reselling recalled goods that they may not even be aware have been recalled. Um, you know, plus, in, in terms of resources, it's, it's just beyond the scope of our annual appropriation and staffing. But we do know that a lot of these third-party platforms, Meta is one of them, but certainly not the only one, do have the technological resources to be able to screen what, what posts. It's, it's their marketplace. And I think with that comes some responsibility. Thanks for this look into consumer protection. I appreciate it. Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Peter Feldman, Consumer Product Safety Commissioner during his visit to Colorado last week. Feldman mentioned spotty internet access in parts of Colorado. An estimated 190,000 homes and businesses here have that problem. But state leaders hope they finally have the right combination of tactics and dollars to change things. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. Perched in the San Juan Mountains, the town of Silverton knows all about the struggle to get high-speed broadband into remote areas. A, we're not a large customer base. 
see, it's really hard to get here. That's Deanne Gallegos, executive director of the Silverton Area Chamber of Commerce. When she first moved to the area 13 years ago, dial-up was the option. So it was a simple modem plugged into a physical landline within my home. She wasn't alone. There isn't a huge year-round population in San Juan County, just under 800, but a million tourists pass through. It's just one of the reasons reliable high-speed internet is important. The constant conversation for how do we grow our future, how do we grow our population, seem to always center around reliable internet service and hopefully someday having access to high-speed internet service. Trying to get high-speed broadband has taken almost a quarter of a century. In 2000, the first attempt to get fiber got within 16 miles of Silverton before funding dried up. Over 10 years later, with more money, helicopters were used to put fiber lines alongside electrical lines to try and connect Silverton. But Gallego says even that fell short. That got laid all the way just outside of town. (laughs) And now we as a community are responsible for figuring out how do we tether to that amazing opportunity that's just right side out of our town. It's a literal embodiment of what many call the last mile problem. Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse. For so long, we have struggled to convince providers to build that last mile. Especially in hard-to-reach places. Despite past promises that failed to deliver, Neguse sees a brighter future thanks to $826 million that's coming to Colorado from the 2021 infrastructure law, which included money for broadband accessibility. He thinks it'll be a game changer. Because now the federal government, by virtue of the investments we are making, will ensure that that last mile is connected. And that investment doesn't just come from the Infrastructure Act. Many communities and the state dedicated some of their COVID relief dollars to broadband expansion as working from home, online school and telehealth expanded. But as past attempts have shown, money has been just one obstacle to spreading broadband across the state. Another has been figuring out who to work with. Early attempts focus on big internet providers to do the work. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett. We kept subsidizing the largest telecommunications companies in America and said to them, to the tune of $50 billion, uh, please go out there and build broadband for the American people. And they never did, especially in rural America. It wasn't cost effective, even with government money on the line. Hinsdale County Commissioner Greg Levine says big companies like CenturyLink didn't give communities what they needed. Rather, the communities got what they got. We were like peasants, you know, um, just (laughs) begging for scraps. And why no providers were willing was that we're just not a market share. It's not a profitable market. Our little teeny community, it doesn't, it doesn't attract big companies. And there could be barriers to luring smaller companies to the market. For example, CenturyLink didn't give other providers much access to the lines they used taxpayer funds to put down. The way one person described it, CenturyLink built a 20-lane broadband highway, but only two of those lanes were open to other providers. CenturyLink did not respond to a request for comment. Still, Levine says they were able to get another provider interested by using a financial incentive. I hate to say it, subsidizing them, giving them a whole lot of money to come in and give us a 20-year contract. Bennett says the ability of local leaders to get things done was something he saw early on. He pointed to the success of regional groups like the Delta Montrose Electrical Association. And they had figured out how to do it and how to supply broadband in ways that almost no community across America had done at very high speeds for their 
constituents. In Colorado, several local governments and regional groups have increasingly dipped their toes into these broadband waters. Brandy Ryder, who heads Colorado's broadband office, says there's no one-size-fits-all solution. You have some local governments that will embark on their own community network, but more often than not, we see a public-private partnership, especially in the areas that are really hard to serve, because they're really hard to scale. And for some local governments, they can't afford to do that. And that's where the recent flood of federal dollars comes in. While Ryder's excited about the challenge and the opportunity this funding is going to provide, she's also trying to manage expectations about how soon people should expect to be able to unplug their modems. You know, when you look at it, it takes approximately two years to complete a fiber project. And that's if all the permitting goes well. The large amount of federal money may be the final piece of the puzzle. But Hinsdale County Commissioner Levine says unlocking it may still be challenging for small local governments, especially to meet the reporting requirements that come with it. Levine says that's going to be the focus for a lot of local leaders now, how to go after this windfall of broadband funds. I just need to learn better how to access it. Because it's, I often say it's like a cake behind glass and it's there, but I need to break that glass. I need to get lifted up somehow and get to that cake and get in there. And it's tough sometimes. Which might lead to the biggest advice many people who've been working on broadband expansion echoed. Have patience and be persistent. Because it's going to take a lot longer to get there than you think. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. After a break, when you hear about a new weather record, you may think, oh, hail. No. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the 1880s, if you were somebody, the place to be was the Hotel de Paris in Georgetown, Colorado. It was the brainchild of a man who called himself Louis de Puy. Born in France with a different name, he squandered an inheritance with fast living, tried the seminary, culinary school, journalism, the French and American armies, deserting each one. Then an explosion in silver plume ended his mining career, and Georgetowners took up a collection, money he used to pop the top of a former bakery and turn it into a hotel. Soon, high society was checking in, drawn by fine French cuisine, an astounding wine cellar, and lavishly decorated rooms, but only if Dupuis allowed. This house is my own, he said, and if I want guests, I invite them in which he did for the creme de la creme before dying of pneumonia October of 1900 in room 13 of the Hotel de Paris. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With support from Mint's law firm in Lakewood. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The largest hailstone ever recorded in Colorado recently fell near a farm on the eastern plains, almost at the Kansas border. CPR's Matt Bloom tagged along with meteorologists to examine it. Do not open freezer. Hailstone is in here. (laughs) Russ Schumacher is standing in front of a small refrigerator, and he's reading off a handwritten sign duct taped to its front door. (laughs) That's a good, I gotta take a picture of that too. (laughs) Schumacher is Colorado State climatologist. He researches changes in weather patterns, and part of his job is tracking extreme events, like the record-sized hailstone sitting inside this freezer at the National Weather Service office in Goodland, Kansas. Yeah, we're going to open it. He puts on a pair of gloves and cracks open the freezer door. Got it. Yeah. There we go. Inside, he picks up a Ziploc bag holding a chunk of ice as big as his hand. It's kind of dirty because we saw that it fell in the kind of in the mud out there. The stone fell during a severe storm in Yuma County, Colorado in August. A storm chaser spotted it on the side of the road and scooped it up. 
He snapped a photo of the stone and brought it to the nearest National Weather Service office, which was right across the Kansas-Colorado border in Goodland. Right, here's a first look at it. Now, a couple days later, Schumacher is here with a few other meteorologists to get some measurements. They start by placing the stone on a scale. So we got a weight of uh, 206.9 grams. That's more than the weight of a billiard ball. The stone melted a little bit during transit, but its diameter is still over five inches. Schumacher says it appears to be a record. This kind of thing is still, uh, you know, it's interesting to do to try and establish records the best that we can. There's even a small crowd watching the measuring take place. That's pretty big. Ethan Lundquist is here with his dad, Jesse, who is a forecaster with the National Weather Service. <laughs> Have you ever seen one that big? No. <laughs> what about you? Uh, well, I was actually the one warning on that storm, so it's neat to see just how big the hail was. I, I think the data was pointing to maybe three-inch hail at the time. So the, uh, the storm was one of the most intense I've seen in my time here at the Weather Service, so it's really neat to see just how big that stone was. Schumacher, the state climatologist, says hail this big is pretty rare, but it's important to track because climate change may be making them more likely. Most of the research that's been done up to this point looking at that question does point towards probably a shift in hail from maybe less uh, small hail because if it's warmer, some of that small hail will end up melting before it gets to the ground. But then the storms that do produce the really big hail could be even stronger. After the measurements are done, the team takes a 3D scan of the stone. The digital model will eventually get used to make a replica for further study. The team sprays the original with nitrogen to keep it from melting too much. This is just to keep it cold so it doesn't melt. A state board of meteorologists will review the measurements and photos to verify that the stone is a new record. The stone itself goes back into the freezer for safekeeping. Schumacher says he expects another hailstone to break this record sometime in the coming years. Colorado is a place where there is a lot of extreme weather, and we kind of all know that and are used to that. But every now and then we see these, these records getting broken, and, and we try to do our best to maintain you know, the integrity of those records to, to see where, uh, you know, to, to evaluate them as carefully as we can and try to establish that so that when the next storm or whatever comes to break that record, we have a good baseline to compare it to. If you find a shockingly large chunk of hail, you can get in touch with the National Weather Service to see if it can challenge the new record, too. Keep it in a plastic baggie in your freezer, and Schumacher and his team might come measure it. Just make sure to wait until a hailstorm is finished before heading outside to scoop it up, or at least wear a helmet. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. And you can see photos of the hailstone in question at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nell London. 
You're with CPR News and KRCC.